0: We invite you this morning to take your Bible, make your way to the book of Jonah. The book of Jonah, Jonah chapter number three is where we're going to find our text this morning. We've been coming through the book of Jonah expositionally and uh, verse by verse, section by section. And we've gleaned much from it. And last week we saw Jonah obey the second call to him. After having gone through quite an experience on his way to Tarshish and being brought all the way back to land in the belly of a fish, and all that we've looked at in in that in that uh, narrative thus far, Um, but now we see Jonah went to Nineveh. He's obeying the Lord. He goes and preaches the message God has given him to preach. And now the big question is, what's going to happen? What would happen with Jonah in Nineveh? What would happen with the Ninevites as they heard this message? And here we see the answer. We're going to see verse 5 down through verse 10. The title of the message is Sovereign Grace in Nineveh. Sovereign Grace in Nineveh. Beginning in verse number 5, we read, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. We have seen how wicked Nineveh is through our study. And we often might think, is it possible that we could view wicked people and think this way? I just don't see how somebody or some people like that would ever turn to the Lord. How could it be possible that we view with that kind of a perception? It is our natural tendency to judge outwardly and have an assumption in our minds regarding the salvific hope of a person, but did you know that that is the entirely wrong way of thinking? Why is that? Because it doesn't matter how outwardly wicked a person may appear to be. Salvation comes to every sinner the same way. The way of salvation coming to a sinner does not in any way depend upon the sinner. And That's the point that is often missed. If it did, there would be no hope for any sinner in this world. So that brings us to consider how are we to ever expect the wicked in the world to repent and turn to Christ? Will they do this of their own free will? Is it their inclination to humble themselves to God's word and turn from their evil ways? Not in the slightest. Not in the slightest. In fact, it's actually the opposite. Man in his natural state hears the word of God and wants to run the opposite direction wants to harden against the Word of God. So what confidence then do we have in the gospel message to save anyone? The confidence that we have lies in the title of this message, and it is in sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. What do I mean by sovereign grace? Well, you will see this expounded further through the text as we come through it. But in short, sovereign grace refers to God's freedom and power to save wicked sinners as he pleases. You see, God's sovereignty is woven through the book. We've touched on that already. It's woven through every aspect of life, including salvation. R.C. Sproul rightly comments and says that most Christians salute the sovereignty of God but believe in the sovereignty of man. And that has been my experience, as many will say, yes, of course God's sovereign, but when it comes down to the nuts and bolts, it's really man who's in charge and making all the decisions. But you'll see plainly that it is God who saves sinners through the means He has ordained and grants a change of heart through His grace. You see, without this change of heart given by God's grace alone, there would be no salvation for any one of us. This is what we see transpires in this great account. Jonah has obeyed the Lord. He has received this call for the second time. Comes to Nineveh, the great city. Keep in mind, the great city, and preaches the message God gave to him. Not his own, but the Lord's message. And that message was this. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The big question is, how would Nineveh respond to such a message? Would Nineveh even give Jonah's words a moment of recognition? Would Jonah's preaching of God's message accomplish anything? How could it, since Nineveh is so proud and so perverse? We would never expect people like the people of Nineveh to repent. But yet, what do we see here? We see the beauty of sovereign grace shining through with great glory and power. So notice with me in our notes this morning, number one, I want to point out to you the effectual rule of sovereign grace. The effectual rule of sovereign grace. And there's a twofold aspect I'll bring to your attention here that we will see in Nineveh, in the hearts of the people of Nineveh, but also that applies to the hearts of all sinners who come to believe. And the first aspect is this is that God's word penetrates wicked hearts. God's word penetrates wicked hearts. Hearts. Now, when we think about mankind and his need to be saved, what is the core problem with mankind? Why is mankind so wicked and evil? Why is Nineveh exceedingly wicked to the point that God says judgment is coming upon you? The answer is the heart of sinful man. When we say the heart, we're not talking about the physical organ that's beating inside of all of us. That organ is illustrative of the innermost part of us spiritually. You see, just as the core of our physical body really is the physical heart, we can't live without it, so the core of our spiritual nature is our spiritual heart. Every single one of us has a spiritual heart, part of our spiritual nature. Now, what is the condition of that spiritual heart? In our own natural state, it is fallen. It is fallen corrupt it is wicked it is sinful it is deceitful it is hardened like stone scripture teaches jeremiah the prophet says in jeremiah 17:9 the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it so understand, Christian, today that when you see all the evils of mankind in the world, we must understand that all of those things flow from what is within the heart of man. You look at the evils that has happened in recent days in Hamas and Israel and other parts of the globe, you say, well, why do men do such a thing? The answer is because their heart is evil. The heart of man is evil, friend. We, we must understand this foundation or we miss the, the, the foundation of the gospel itself. But the same is true for each and every one of us in our own life. Every ounce of sin that flows out of your life comes firstly from your heart. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21 and 22, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft and murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, and the list could go on and on. All that's wrong with you begins with what's inside of you. See, this has been the condition of mankind from the very beginning. When Adam fell into sin and plunged all of us into such a state of wickedness. You recall what the state of mankind was on the face of the earth in the days of Noah. We recall the global flood. The global flood is an act of God's wrath and judgment. Why did he do such a thing? The answer is because of what was in the heart of man and what he was doing. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And what do we read about Nineveh in chapter 1? God says, their evil has come up before me. He's pronouncing that Nineveh is evil. They are wicked and this is rooted in their heart. And so this is what we must see. Because of evil in their heart, it has produced the abundance of their evil practices. Now, since the heart of man and that of Nineveh is so wicked, how would we ever expect any sinner with such a heart to actually listen, to actually obey, to actually humble themselves, to actually repent, to actually actually believe, to turn to the God who is rebuking them for their evil? Now, we might expect Jonah, this Jewish foreigner, walking into this major city... Coming in there and shouting, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. We might expect that they would scoff at him, scorn his message, shun his message, say, who is this crazy weirdo coming in out of nowhere? Who is he to tell us that we are going to be destroyed? That is the natural way of thinking in mankind. As Paul rightly said in Romans 3.11, no one understands, no one seeks for God. Then we see some who hear. Some who hear and the Lord breaks them down. They break down in repentance. They recognize their need. They're humbled by the word of God. They come to actually believe on Christ. What is it that makes the difference here? It is God's sovereign grace. It is God's sovereign grace. It is that God intentionally has used His Word to cut to the very core of the heart of whomever He wills. And He uses His Word to do that very thing. You understand that it is the Word of God that cuts deep and changes hearts. It's not my charisma. It's not a preacher's ability or or, or anything else. It is the Word of the living God only that does that. Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now notice this. This is what fascinates me about this account of Nineveh. What is the response from Nineveh? We would expect scoffing and scorning. But instead we read in verse 5 that the people of Nineveh did what? They believed God. They believed God. God. We don't read that they scoffed or shunned Jonah. We read that they believed God, the opposite of what their natural nature should lead them to do. They believed God regarding what Jonah preached. And here's an essential point about this note it does not say that Nineveh believed Jonah. Catch that. It says that they believed God. They believed God. What's that show us? That shows us the word of God has done as what God ordained it to do. It has cut to the core of their heart so that it's worked in them to see the words of Jonah, not as some babbling prophet from Israel, but as a message from the living God invoked to them. It is driven home to their own heart. You ever sat in a church service and you just felt like the preacher was hammering right on you only? That's not a fun thing to endure, is it? But that's how the Word of God works. Because I promise you, the preacher has no time to go follow you around and figure out what you're doing and then preach against you on Sunday. You don't have time to do that. Contrary to popular belief, we do work more than two hours a week. All right? That's a common misconception. God takes His Word and directs it to the hearts of those who need it for the specific need when He wills to do that. And in so doing, this is what happens, is that the person who is affected by the word of God in their heart, they don't view the word being spoken as just some preacher babbling up there for a little while. They view it as the message of God. Because it's the word of God being communicated. You see, we have to understand that this is the only way in which true grace is known. It's when the message of God is received, not as the message of man, but as the word of God. Paul said this of the Thessalonian church to their praise in 1 Thessalonians two 2.13, God's grace in them. He says, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. You know, there are many today who judge a sermon based on the preacher and they give him some kind of a grade of approval or disapproval based on fleshly notions. They base their judgment on whether the preacher was, well, he was too long or he was too short. He was too loud, he was too quiet. He was too smart, he was too toned down. He was too old, he was too young. There's a lot of different gauging of preaching today. But I think we all understand and must see the validity of the message being preached is not in the preacher in his style or his charisma or anything else. The validity of the message is in the word of the living God. I could be up here and just be as boring as I'll get out. But if the word of God is being spoken, you had better pay attention. Maybe I am boring as I'll get out. If I am, that's fine. You don't have to tell me, okay? But. This is the reality I'm communicating, is that the message must be received as God's Word. It's not, it's not about the preacher. It's about the message, message coming through from the Scriptures. Every message proclaimed that is Scripture, rightly expounded and applied, is the Word of God declared to His people. And since it is the Word of God that penetrates hearts, this gives all of us comfort in knowing the effect of the message does not rest on my power but on God's alone. When I learned that, that took a lot of stress off my shoulders because I used to think if things didn't happen in a church service, man, I must have failed miserably. Like it was up to me to save sinners. A lot of people minister that way. They manipulate people to get professions of faith. But it's not up to me. It's not up to you, Christian. When you witness, understand, you're taking the gospel, you're sharing it with your friend, your loved one, your neighbor, whoever. God will use that. He doesn't require you to be a perfect communicator to do it he just says give it preach it declare it because it's his power that makes the difference notice with me letter b not only do we see god's word is what penetrates wicked hearts we see that in nineveh but that's the principle for everything else god's work converts wicked hearts god's work converts wicked hearts Again, from this one statement, we glean another aspect of sovereign grace. In verse 5, we read, and the people of Nineveh believed God. So that points us to the fact that the message, it cut into their heart. That's what God's word does by his grace. But not only that, we see they believed God. What is it to believe? Here the word refers to have trust in God. That's essentially what believing is. It is to trust in. It is to be persuaded in. To have faith in. Faith is a persuasion of a truth based on its authority. And here we see the Ninevites believing God. I'll have you note that they did not believe in just any God that might have been accepted or known in their pagan culture. No, they believed Jonah's God. They believe Jonah's God, the God of Jonah, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Israel, the God of creation, the one true living God. That's the God they believe in here, not any other. Interestingly, the the same word used to describe Abraham's faith is the one used here regarding Nineveh. We read in the life of Abraham in Genesis 15, 6, that he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. See, we must understand this, that when someone truly believes, they truly have saving faith, they have been made new, a change has taken place in their heart, supernaturally. We call this regeneration often, or also the new birth. You recall what Jesus said regarding the new birth, except you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. That is the work of God. It is a change internally that you can't orchestrate or fabricate yourself, and it can't be undone either. You see, God spoke through Ezekiel, describing this under the new covenant. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of what? Stone of flesh, right? Stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a heart transformation. Paul the Apostle describes it in greater detail in Titus. He says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus 3, 4-7. Now just contemplate the scene in Nineveh for a moment. The Ninevites, just moments before Jonah walks into that city and preaches, they are entrenched in their evil. They don't have a care in the world for the God of Jonah. They're entrenched in their evil, their violent ways, and in the span of a very, very short time of Jonah walking in and proclaiming this message of judgment, we read that the people of Nineveh believed God. How did they all of a sudden have this faith in Jonah's God? Because that is the work of the Word of God in the heart of sinners. Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes by hearing, and hearing through what? The word of Christ. But we find, friend, that many hear the same word of the gospel but remain unaffected by it, don't we? Why is this? Because though many may hear, they are not actually hearing. Though they may hear, they're not actually hearing. They may hear with physical ears, but their spiritual ears are dead and deaf. The spiritual ears are dead in sin and do not respond unless God grants this hearing to them. Jesus would often say after much of his teaching, this statement, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Mark 4, 9. And that always used to puzzle me. What in the world is he talking about? Of course, they just all heard him, right? What he saying with that. Those who are able to understand, let them understand. Jesus very well knows that everyone has physical ears that he taught. But he's not talking about physical hearing. He's talking about spiritual hearing, actually being gripped in the heart by the truth he just spoke. And here, friend, is where God's sovereignty ties into all of this by the fact that he alone chooses to open deaf ears or not. It's not in the sinner's ability to open his deaf ears, it's in God's ability only. We see this throughout the scriptures in various scenes regarding the rebellious generation of Israel. Deuteronomy 29, 2-4, listen to this. Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. What do you find in this? You see the sovereignty of God in this issue. Noah preached to the wicked generation before the flood. He was a herald of righteousness, but it fell on deaf ears. But in contrast to that, we read of, say, an example of Lydia in the New Testament. Acts 16, 14. What do we read of her? The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. You see, in each of these instances, we see that God is the one who takes the initiative, not man. Man. Common Christianity has that reversed. And we must see it biblically. Because sinful man in his fallen state, he neither has the ability or the desire to believe on God, except God's grace work in his heart. See, we glean from the Scriptures that both faith and repentance, they are indeed gifts of God, inseparable from each other, gifts that we exercise upon receiving them through His Word. They go hand in hand as a mark of conversion. And this is accomplished through the word of the living God. Listen, look, look with me, if you would, to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. I want you to see this passage in verse 6 down through verse 11. Isaiah 55 and verse 6 through 11. Notice this. The Lord is speaking and he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, and he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Isn't that a wonderful invitation? It is. It's a staggering invitation, considering who God is and who we are. That's why God says in verse 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, that can apply to various contexts and situations, but this, the, here's the staggering thought. Who, who are we that God would give any kind of salvation to wicked man? But notice how he does it in verse 10 and 11. He says, "...for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth." It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I send it. What do you notice about this? God's word accomplishes what he desires, what he purposes. You see, God ordained through this passage, through this whole narrative, that his word would bring about faith and repentance in the Ninevites, and it did just that. Left to themselves, they never would have responded in such a way. And I want you to understand that that's the only reason for Jonah's preaching success here. And it is the only reason for any preaching success. It is the sovereign grace of God that rules over the hearts of men for whatever purpose he pleases. And I love this quote by J.I. Packer. He says, people treat God's sovereignty as a matter of controversy. But in Scripture, it's a matter of worship. May we recognize this. The God's sovereignty, yes, people fight all the time all about it, but you can't take it out of the Bible. It is a matter of worship, friend, and He's worthy of worship for it. Oh, how we need to see this and, and, and acknowledge it, even in our own heart and life. For without this truth, none of us would have believed in Christ. Which brings me to number two what we see in the life of Nineveh here. We see the effectual rule of sovereign grace. But notice the extensive reach of sovereign grace. The extensive reach of sovereign grace. Notice firstly that the greatest of people are reached by grace. The greatest of people are reachable by grace. Now, I say that loosely because the world has certain distinctions that it puts upon people. By their societal, their cultural, their ethnic status... mankind makes those distinctions, and they're just part of the world we live in. But did you know there's no such distinction in the eyes of God? There's no racial distinction in the eyes of God. There's no cultural distinction in the eyes of God. Because every person in this world, regardless of whether they're high or low in society, whether whether they're black, white, or yellow, or pink, or purple... We all bleed the same. We all have the same fallen nature. We all need to be redeemed. Thus God says, or Paul preached in Acts 17, 26-27, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet He is actually not far from each one of us. What does that show us? What does that teach us? That all mankind is one race of people on earth and that God's grace is not bound to human distinctions. You say, why is this important to the message? Because this is the whole reason Jonah didn't want to go there in the first place. He hated the Ninevites. They were his enemies. They weren't Jewish. They weren't God's covenant people in his eyes. He despises them. They have inflicted great harm on Israel as, the, as their enemies. And yet God commissions Jonah and He says, Get up and go to Nineveh to warn them of impending judgment. Christian, this is the bigger picture for the church today. What has God said to the church? Go, preach the gospel to all of creation. He says, Go. Make disciples of the nations. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, the way even to the end of the age. Christian, the grace of God has no boundaries. The most wicked people in this world need the gospel because that's the only salvation for them. Those evil people in Hamas, you know what they need? They need the gospel. The wicked sinners here in our own community that outwardly appear to be morally upstanding citizens, they need the gospel. The gospel is what people need. You see, we see in this passage the grace of God having no distinction based on human perception, both in ethnicity but also in cultural statuses, societal statuses. Look at verse 6. What do we see? The word reached the king of Nineveh, the king. What happens when the king hears this message that Jonah brought? We read that he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the higher class of society in Nineveh. Really the highest position in Nineveh. Being affected by the grace of God from the preaching Jonah brought. You see, whether he heard it directly from Jonah or the word simply traveled to him from others to the throne, it makes no difference. It was God's message. This is God's work. You see, God has reached the heart of the king. For even the king in all of his lofty status and royal prestige is not beyond the grace of God breaking him down and humbling him and bringing him to repentance. We see all through the Scriptures examples. Those who were deemed higher in society, reached by God's grace. You know, Nicodemus was a higher class individual in his day. Religious leader. Yet the grace of God had reached him. Joseph of Arimathea, who was a very wealthy man. The grace of God had reached him. Roman soldiers who were greatly admired and feared among the people. Grace of God reached him. And lest we forget the Apostle Paul, he was top tier in his day. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, but what do we see? The grace of God strikes him down on the road to Damascus. Saves him, changes his heart. See, right here in our text, we see God's grace reaching even the king over this evil and corrupt city. How should this affect our view of God's grace? Of those who would be deemed higher level in society? Well, Paul answers that for us in 1 Timothy 2 verse 1 through 6. Let us read it for a moment. Paul instructs Timothy, the pastor of the church, says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life Life, godly and dignified in every way, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You understand, Paul and Timothy live in times where the higher status of society, they were exceedingly wicked exceedingly evil and Paul says pray for them and desire the gospel to reach them and save them see regardless of how powerful a person is or appears to be God's sovereign grace is greater than that may we pray for those even in our own authority the wickedness that we see in our own nation in both kinds of both kinds of political parties. There's no, there's no righteous party that's perfect. What does everyone need? The gospel of Christ. It's the gospel, friend. May we pray and seek this and understand the gospel reaches all classes of people. But not, that brings me to the letter B. Not only do we see the greatest of people reached by grace, but we also see the least of people reached by grace. What do we see in verse 5? They call for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. You Notice who's repenting in Nineveh. The greatest to the least. What's that include? That means everybody in every class, no matter how low someone might be, in the eyes of man. And here's yet another point of application. That we do not view those whom we think lower class as beyond the reach or need of the gospel of God's grace. We must never judge by outward appearance, circumstance, or even the iniquity of a person. We must believe only in the power of the grace of God to reach even the lowest of sinners. The most filthy that we see living in this world. The scriptures teach, or we see examples really. Think of Rahab, who, what what was she? She was a harlot, a prostitute. And yet we find Rahab being saved by the grace of God. Beggars and lame were reached over and over by Christ and his ministry. The thief on the cross, dying on his last, his deathbed, is saved by the grace of God. See, the truth is, is that reaching the lower class of people was a hot point of contention in Jesus' day. Because he sat with sinners. Luke 5, 30 through 32, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Aren't you glad Jesus came to save sinners of every class? I know I am, because I'm not in that upper class. I'm not. At least I don't consider myself to be. We find that he came to reach people of every class and kind. Jesus died for the homeless just as much as he died for the wealthy. He died for servants just as much as he died for kings. And by his sovereign grace and by his shed blood, he has guaranteed the conversion of his people through the entire world. That's what we will find as we sing and worship him in heaven We read in Revelation, Revelation chapter number five and verse nine and ten. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain by your blood. You ransomed people from God, for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What a glorious scene heaven will be with this innumerable multitude. That brings us to the next element of sovereign grace we must recognize, and that is the expected result of sovereign grace. What is the expected result of sovereign grace? And I want you to see a twofold aspect here, and then we'll be done. The first expected result is this is that there will be the fruit of repentance. The fruit of repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance, in short, is a change of attitude or heart, an action from sin toward obedience to God. This is a change that happens in the heart. It is inseparable from faith. They work together. Now, there's no Hebrew word and exact equivalent to the term English term repentance. Repentance was expressed by a number of different actions that, that show a change in thinking and attitude towards sin and towards God. In the New New Testament, the Greek word for repentance derives from a verb meaning to radically change one's thinking. Repentance refers to an event in which an individual attains a divinely provided new understanding of their behavior and feels compelled to change that behavior and begin this new relationship with God or walk in this new relationship with God. So you understand that repentance and faith They go hand in hand. They are like two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. And as mentioned earlier, it is God's sovereign prerogative to grant repentance and faith through the working of His Word. We see the gifting nature of repentance as Paul instructs Timothy in his pastoring of the church. In 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, We read, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. You see, God's initiative here. See, though all men everywhere are commanded to repent, they will forever refuse to repent unless God in His grace changes their hearts and grants them repentance and faith. You see, both God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are true. And you must believe them both or you miss the whole picture of the gospel. We must see both. But I think it's important that we understand the first cause. And this brings us to see the further expectation what sovereign grace does in repentance. Where there is true repentance, there will be fruit of that repentance. It is not just that an internal change takes place and nothing else. There's an external change that follows after the internal change. James said rightly in James 2.17, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And here we find a great problem in modern Christianity. There are many who profess faith, but not as many that live out that faith. Many profess faith, but there is no evidence of faith in their life whatsoever. They still live the same wicked lifestyle. Well, I got saved when I went to here, and I did that, but then they go off and just keep on doing their same old thing They've not been changed. Friend, that's an empty profession. Empty. Where is the fruit of repentance in this text? Oh, it's saturated through the whole of it. Look at Nineveh and what happens with them. In verse 5, notice what they said. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth. What is a fast and putting on sackcloth? Well, we know fasting is to restrain from eating food. What happens when you don't eat food? You get a little weak, don't you? At least I do. Getting hungry right now. I know you are too. I can hear your stomachs grumbling. You're saying, preacher, hurry up. I'm almost done, I promise. But you understand, fasting is to restrain from eating, leading you to draw near to God in your weakened physical state. Sackcloth was a rough cloth made from animal hair, usually that of a goat or a camel. See, in ancient times and Near Eastern literature, it refers to a type of material that was used in various household duties, such as the construction of clothing and sacks. To wear sackcloth was a very lowly, uncomfortable thing to wear. So to fast and wear sackcloth, they were ancient demonstrations of mourning, most often not only in the sorrow of losing someone, but also as an act of deep contrition and repentance. And what is fascinating here is that we see the people of the city spread throughout. They're beginning to fast and put on sackcloth. But what's fascinating about this is that it's not just happening to those in the city, but the king of the city. The king of the city. When he heard Jonah's message in verse 6, we read, he arose from his... Just, just picture this. Picture this in your mind. A grasp hold of the gravity of what grace has done to this king. He arose from his throne. Removed his robe, which is royal. Covered himself in sackcloth. Or I mean with, yeah, with sackcloth. And then sat in ashes. Consider that scene. The act of God's grace affecting such a man in such a high and exalted position. Men in those kind of positions, they're not typically prone to be humble, are they? They're prone to be proud and arrogant. But he's humbled from the throne, stepping off of it, lowering himself in the ashes and putting on sackcloth. Now you just imagine for a moment, imagine if our own nation, our own national leaders expressed such a sign of repentance toward God. May I say that that's exactly what our nation needs? It needs repentance from the bottom to the top. All of it. And I want you to understand that based on this text, that is not beyond the power of God's grace. Never doubt the power of God's grace, but this is a demonstration of repentance. And we see it continue in verse 7 and 8. We read that he issued a proclamation published through Nineveh by decree of the king and his nobles. Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. That's the proclamation. The king is calling on Nineveh to conduct behavioral responses towards Jonah's message. Now I think we can note here that the repentance we see in Nineveh does not necessarily mean every single individual was converted. Most likely there might be a few who's just going with the flow. That's what happens. There's no way to know that for certain. But we do know that it must have been a great many who have repented. Judging by this citywide change that took place. You see, this is not the only instance in which a king, having been greatly impacted by God's grace, has made a decree over the land. King Darius did such when he was so affected by God saving Daniel Daniel 6, 26, he he proclaimed, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall never be, there shall never be no end. I would love to see that come through the newscast, wouldn't you? What we find here is that with this king of Nineveh, he recognizes that God's judgment is coming because of their evil. He recognizes their evil. He says further in verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence of his hands. Then he says, who knows? God may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You remember, there wasn't any hope in what we read of Jonah's message, is there? Who knows? At the very least, we had better repent, but who knows? It's possible Jonah could have expounded further, but it's not written in Scripture for us to know that. Five words in the Hebrew was his message according to the text. Only judgment was pronounced. But what you see in Nineveh's king and in the people of Nineveh is the fruit of repentance. That is the result of sovereign grace. What better fruit of repentance could there be than inward change that affects outward change? This inward manifestation... This outward manifestation of the inward transformation is God's sovereign grace brought to bear on their hearts and lives, which brings me to letter B. And lastly, you can say Amen. You must not be that hungry. Nobody, Amen. Me, I'll keep going if you want. Is that there will be the mercy of reprieve here? The effect of sovereign grace is that not only bring repentance and faith and change, but it brings mercy, deliverance. Verse 10, we read the result. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And This, friend, is the whole reason Jonah didn't want to go in the beginning. And he'll tell us that in the next chapter. It was because of the possibility. God, if you're going to give them a message of judgment, I know that you probably have the intention of mercy towards them, and he didn't want to have them having mercy. What's interesting is we don't have a timeline of when they found out they are receiving mercy. Most likely, they're having to... Anxiously wait those 40 days to see if God is going to be merciful to them. God was merciful to this wicked city. He displayed his sovereign grace in a way that is rarely seen today. Now there are some who hold that Nineveh did not experience true saving grace of God and that this was only a brief change of moral standards. It is true that within the next generation, Nineveh is going to be right back at their wickedness. Another generation rises up. But Scripture makes plain the nature of their repentance. Firstly, it is God who says the people of Nineveh believed God. God gave us that in His Word. It's God who says that. The evidence is clearly seen in their repentance. Second reason I would say that this was genuine conversion is that God would not have lifted His hand of judgment if the Ninevites were acting in some kind of a hypocrisy, putting on a repentance show to try to get out of judgment, for He knows the heart. But I think lastly we see with Nineveh is that Jesus' own testimony, if you'll turn to Matthew, one final passage I'll read to you. Matthew 12, Jesus' own testimony indicates that this generation of Nineveh will be at the final judgment condemning the generation of Jesus that rejected him. Matthew 12, in verse 38 through verse 41, look at me here. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That is a staggering statement to behold. The Ninevites believed after one short sermon without signs, whereas the scribes and Pharisees and many in Israel in Jesus' day had many sermons and miracles and signs, and yet still refused to believe. The greater judgment goes on the generation of Jesus. You understand that Nineveh, compare it to us, Nineveh repented with less revelation of truth than multitudes have entered church houses over and over in their life, heard the gospel, and still leave unrepentant. Unrepentant. Jesus said in John 12, 48, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You understand that for every single one of us in this room, the word of God will be our final judge, what God judges with. The word of God. We have all heard the gospel. The call from God to every single one of us, if we are not saved, is to repent and believe on Christ. You must recognize your sin. Recognize you are worthy of just condemnation. Wrath. Christ bore God's wrath on the cross as a substitute for sinners who believe in him. That is the responsibility. You are accountable for such. Repent and believe. Because God's sovereignty in salvation, it does not negate man's responsibility to obey what God has proclaimed to us here today. So, all of us have to come to this question how will we respond to the Word of God? How has His Word affected my heart today? How will I respond to it so as to be obedient to Him?